my text today from Acts chapter 9. Kind of skipped over a little bit from last week. Um, but these two chapters together, 8 and 9, have been referred to as conversion chapters. You can kind of see why from the passage we read. That's quite a conversion from this man named Saul who later became what we know him as, as Paul the Apostle. But you may recall last week we started in chapter 8 in the murder of Stephen and we were told there that, that this Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. He, they laid their, clo- their, their clothes, their outer garments at the feet of this Saul as they stoned Stephen for his preaching. And we found out that the church began to spread. The initial phase of the Great Commission, if you will, God disseminating His church through the persecution of the church in order to spread the gospel and thereby spread the church beginning there in Jerusalem over the entire face of the planet. But it started right there. And so we have numerous conversions that we read about starting in chapter 8. And then the first personal conversion Somebody that we learn his name by the name of Simon the Magician there in chapter 8. And actually it's interesting that the first conversion, personal conversion that was recorded was actually a false conversion. Because you remember Simon, we were told, believed. But then a little while later we find out we're not sure what he was believing in, but it wasn't Jesus. It was all the stuff that was surrounding it. And so he was strongly rebuked. He was a false convert. And I think that there's probably a lot there that we need to pay attention to if God was willing to say, look at this, the first convert by name. Oh, and he's a false convert. You know, it, it kind of reminds you of the wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many go in there, but few go into the narrow gate in the small way uh, that leads to life. Just that idea of the remnant. But then there was the Ethiopian eunuch right after the story of Simon, the next personal uh, conversion, and we don't know his name, but that was a great conversion story. <clears throat> Philip, who was a servant at the early church, a deacon, you might say, being forced from Jerusalem because of the persecution into Samaria, where he was preaching the gospel, and all kinds of people were being converted to the faith. And God was doing great signs and wonders and right in the middle of that he took Philip and sent him to the desert. It's not a very um, promising thought if you're into sort of the church growth movement because here you are right in the middle of this huge conversion and great stories and God doing all this work and you know God just takes this preacher and takes him out to the desert. He had to be thinking, what on earth? You're sending me out where there's nobody. But there was somebody. This Ethiopian eunuch, a servant of the queen in Ethiopia. You're probably familiar with that term by now, but a eunuch was one who was taken to be a servant at an early age. and um, They were never to be anything else. They, can never, they would never marry. They would never have any other relationships other than being a servant to the royalty. And this is where this eunuch had 
come from, but he had been in Jerusalem to worship, we are told. And God sends Philip alongside him, who finds out, or we find out as we read the story, he's a religious man, and he's reading the Old Testament, in fact, and he's reading the very passage that we just read from Isaiah 53. And he asks, who is this prophet talking about, himself or some other? And we read that Philip took that scripture from Isaiah 53 that the Ethiopian was reading and he preached Christ to him and explained that Jesus is God's son. And this prophet is talking about the Messiah that had come, the Savior of the world sent by God, the perfect sinless Savior. And talked to him about the death on the cross and the glorious resurrection. And this was the answer the Ethiopian had been longing for. The truth that he had been seeking His hunger and longing for truth was satisfied now in the resurrected Christ. And we are told he was baptized and then he went away joyful. The first true individual conversion that we read about in Acts, though we don't know his name, we know that he was brought to Christ. And then we're taken immediately to this next personal conversion. And we know this name. We've already encountered him before. His name is Saul. He was a witness, again, to the stoning of Stephen and even consented to it. And then we read, beginning in chapter 9, where I picked up, at the beginning of chapter 8, he was resting people, wreaking havoc on the church. At the beginning of chapter 9, he is still wreaking havoc on the church, dragging men and women to prison. And we find out also that he is so zealous for doing this. Doing it in Jerusalem is not enough. He gets permission to even go to Damascus, which is like 140 miles from Jerusalem. He so hates this new movement that is referred to as the way, this Christian faith, that he's willing to leave Jerusalem and go 140 miles to persecute it and stamp it out. Now, if you can think about that, from where we are, it would be kind of like a little past Chattanooga or a little past Athens or a little past Macon or a little past Birmingham. That's a long ways to want to go make sure you get rid of some people. And I like the way the Bible says here he was breathing threats. Seriously breathing threats of murder against the disciples. Now that's an interesting word. It's almost like an onomatopoeia, if you know what that is. If you don't, it's where what you do or your action or your words sound like what you're doing. So he was so angry and agitated by the thought of the church, it was almost like he would growl when he thought about killing these people. He he just despised it. But it's also a picture of it's like the air he breathed. He woke up and went to bed at night thinking about destroying this movement. It was the oxygen to his life. He hated it. Now, just to compare and contrast these two conversions, you have both the Ethiopian and Saul. They're both religious. I mean, we read later, Saul, when he becomes Paul, he admits that he was a very religious man. And even when he was doing this, it was what he thought was religious. He thought he was doing what was right. He was getting rid of these 
people he saw as a threat to his religion, his Judaism. The Ethiopian is religious. He's obviously in Jerusalem to worship. But you have the Ethiopian who is a servant and Saul who is a well-educated, high-ranking member of society, of his culture. You have a Jew and you have a Gentile. There's a lot of contrast and a lot of comparison. Two very different stories, though, but the very same result. And this is part of the beauty of the faith of Christianity. Part of the beauty of the church. You can come from anywhere. You can look like anything. You can be nothing or be something in the world. And the Lord God will save you and convert you into one faith under one Lord in one church, in one body, in one community for all eternity. That is what the church is supposed to look like, by the way. And it really does. The real, true church looks that way. It's the beauty of unity and diversity. We never hear from the Ethiopian again. There's a lot of speculation. He was from Africa. And about 300 years later, there were some pretty important people in the church from Africa. You may have heard of Augustine of Hippo. That's quite an important African in a Christian church. In a part of church history, very important part of church history. There's a lot of speculation that maybe this eunuch went back and from his conversion, the gospel spread all over the continent there. But we do hear a lot about Saul. I would say it's fair to estimate he becomes the most influential life in church history and human history, second, of course, only to Jesus himself. From his missionary journeys to the 13 letters that he pens in the New Testament, his influence is virtually immeasurable. But again, his conversion is no more important than the eunuch who we never hear from again. What's important is that God takes sinners from all walks of life and he changes them and saves them and brings them into his family and adopts them just the same. The eunuch was as much adopted into the family of God as Paul the Apostle was. So what I want to do is just for a few minutes continue to look or just observe some facts from these two conversions. First of all, especially thinking about Saul here, the fact that he doesn't seem to be much of a seeker. He's not looking for anything. He thinks he has it. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need religion. He has religion. He doesn't need truth. He thinks he has it. Now again, the eunuch is in the desert reading the Old Testament trying to figure out what this is about. I would say maybe his religion had left him empty a little bit. He's seeking. He's searching. But Saul is not. This is a great reminder to us that it is God who seeks the lost and not the other way around. It was God who came looking for Adam in the garden. Adam wasn't looking for God. And it's been the same ever since. Romans 3.11, we're told, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks after God. So when I find somebody or encounter somebody who is looking for God, 
That's a great indicator that God is doing something in that person's life. Because the Bible is clear, we don't come here seeking God. Ever since the garden, we want to write, run and, and, and hide away from God. Because we hate the light. Because our deeds are evil. And we'd rather have darkness where our deeds are covered. At least we think they are. In the hope for mankind, we need to be reminded it's not that he will come to himself. And I, I speak this this morning for us because every week we have a prayer request. Pray for our lost family. And many of you have family who are lost. And I do too. And friends who do not know Christ. There may be somebody here this morning who does not know Christ. The hope for you, the hope for anybody is not that these people will turn over a new leaf or decide that one day, man, it would be better if I had something different in my life. Maybe I should consider Christianity. Maybe I should consider religion. Maybe I should just do something different with my life. The hope for mankind is that God will do something about it. And whether God brings you from Ethiopia to Jerusalem and puts a copy of Isaiah in your hand, or whether He knocks you off a horse because you think you need nothing to tell you that He is Lord, in both cases, the common denominator is God. It's not where any of these people were from. It's not what they were going to be. The common denominator is God. He can and will bring people to faith in exactly the way He wishes. Slow processes for some, magnificent strokes of divine intervention for others. And by the way, it doesn't happen the same for anybody. So we need to stop thinking that, and mostly here we don't. We're patient with those who are slow, and we're excited with those who are fast. It's not up to us. I can't make you believe faster than you believe and I can't slow you down if God's doing something in your heart and life. He brings people to faith in exactly the way He wishes. We've been far too busy in the church trying to get people to do what we want them to do. But I love the way that God saves Saul. And it's interesting, interesting that he saves him in between these other men who didn't see what was happening but only heard. And we're not even told that they were converted. And we might look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Why would he pick that one up and save him out of the midst of these others? I don't know. That's God's business. He can do what he wants to. We don't know that he didn't save them. But we're not told that he didn't. We're not told that he did here. There are a lot of people in our midst, are there not, that we need, a lot of people in our, our acquaintances, that we need to just pray that God would knock them off their horse just like he did Saul. This is one of the things I never understand about the free will argument. God wouldn't violate our free will. Well, you better hope He will. Because if He don't, you're going to freely continue to follow your flesh and the devil and the world. I'd say Saul was all kinds of violated right here. But that's what we pray God will do. I don't want them to keep thinking the way they do. Lord, I want you to change them. 
I still pray for myself. God, continue to change my thinking. When my flesh keeps taking over, when my desire to be worldly comes about, whatever that's all about, transform my mind that I will not be conformed to this world. Because that's the truth of who we are in Christ. This is the way God saves people. We don't understand. As Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes. And so it is with the Spirit. This is why we don't target people. We don't have specific kind of people. We don't have a way we want our church to look. I go back to what I said earlier. I think when you know that God is doing a great work in your midst, nobody really looks the same in your church. You've got different kinds of family, different kinds of dynamics. Because God is picking who He will and saving. It doesn't mean we don't go out and find people to share the gospel with. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying we don't. We do target people. We just don't discriminate. Pick which ones it is. Whoever God sends us, whoever He puts in front of us, and again, we never think, well, they wouldn't fit in our church, or they probably wouldn't get along with us. That's none of our... Maybe God needs to change us to get along with them. Sometimes we still have a tendency to be that way. But God saves indiscriminately. And He makes people and uses people just how they are. This Ethiopian, I'm sure, was used for a great purpose. Saul was used for a great purpose. God took all those, all that learning, all that um, desire and compassion and zeal, and he changed it for his glory. That's why he could do all the stuff he did. Not everybody would have stood before a king and told him he needed to be saved. Not everybody would be a John the Baptist and look at a king and say, hey, you're living with your brother's wife and that's sinful. God does not like it. It takes people of all kinds. And God saves us and puts us in the kingdom where He wants us. We don't pick. After all, who would have picked Saul? If you had a church that had a prospect list of people who were going to go visit, who would have put Saul on that list? And better yet, who would have volunteered? I'll go see Saul. I mean, even Ananias. God speaking to Ananias in a way that he doesn't speak to people anymore. However this was, in an audible voice, Ananias, go to Saul. And Ananias was saying, almost like God, I mean, do you understand who Saul is? He wants to kill people like me. I'm not going there. This is not the guy you had put on the, uh, you know, weekly church prospect list. The, you know, the guy that breathes out murderings towards the church. But yet, this was God's purpose and plan. And He saved him. It's an amazing conversion. The second thing I think is important for us to observe from this passage is the way that the Lord identified with His bride, the church. I love the way the story goes. Saul, why are you persecuting these little church people? That's not what he says. Why are you persecuting these houses of worship? Why are you persecuting this movement? No, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is a beautiful thought and encouraging for those especially who are being persecuted. 
As Michael was reading that story from Iran, I'm always struck by these stories because this is so foreign to us. I mean, I know that our culture is changing and there's great antagonism toward the church and toward the faith and toward just Christian conservative values. But I mean, probably none of us have totally been kicked out of our family. We've probably not been blindfolded and beaten. This has to be hard to understand, especially in light of what we've made church and the gospel in this charismatic prosperity thought that the only thing that will ever come to Christians is good. Your best life now. I doubt that ever crossed the mind of those Iranians as they were blindfolded being beaten. Man, this is my best life. But at the same time, and we may not ever know it on this side of eternity, but if we ever do, this kind of stuff has to matter. When, when Jesus came to the one persecuting his church, he said, why are you persecuting me? Not even my people. He identifies with his own. This makes a lot of sense or more sense when you read Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus speaking in these terms of being in the latter days. He says, When the Son of Man comes in all His glory and all the holy angels with Him, He will sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you... You was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? When were you naked and we clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Jesus identifies with his people. He cares for his own. And make no mistake, he will recompense those who mess with his church because you're messing with Christ. Those who curse his name and persecute his church will be brought to justice in one way or another. Saul was brought to justice one much different than most of us would have wanted to see him brought to justice. But he was brought to the same justice that most of us are brought to. One that we didn't deserve. We're justified before Christ. Third, observe this. I think it's important. He was baptized. And this is the consistent model in Acts. Conversion and baptism. People who come to faith in Christ are baptized and always in that order. I don't think I have to say a whole lot more about that in the Baptist church. Our confession states that very clearly. But it does bring me to this fourth and final observation in this text. And that is to note the obedience of the saved people of God. 
Thus far, this has been the pattern. When people hear the gospel, the God of creation, the gospel of that, the God of creation that sent His Son to earth to die in their place, that He lived a perfect, sinless life, was crucified for it, but was crucified dead and buried three days later, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And a lot of times we see, and even in Acts, when people heard that their sin was responsible for crucifying Jesus, then they repented and believed and were baptized and added to the church. And we are told, and they continued in fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer and so forth. And so for Saul, there was no different order. He repented of his sin. He believed and was baptized. And then he was obedient. Confronted with the truthfulness of Christ, He followed him. When God calls effectually his people, there's but one response, and it's the same one that we see from Saul. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord. There's no discussion in Scripture about lordship because Christ is Lord. There is no other response than that. Submit and commit yourself to Christ. This is why I go back to there's so much more to Christian faith than saying a prayer or even being baptized and joining in the church. All those things are important. But the scriptural admonition is for the believers of Christ and the followers of Christ to surrender their lives to Him in total commitment and obedience to His every command. And yes, that's impossible. And yes, we'll fail at it. And we won't do it. But that's what we're commanded to do and when we fail that we come back and we surrender again to Christ and we start back again because we've been born again it's the very thing that God commanded of Adam and Eve and Abraham and Noah and Moses David Solomon the disciples everybody in the scripture is commanded with these words behold to obey is better than sacrifice the Lord wants our obedience Jesus said not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is how we know we know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says he knows Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. Now he who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is what the Bible would say is call, making your calling and election sure is you run to obedience. You read the Scriptures and you want to do what they say, even though some days you don't want to do what they say. But it's the Spirit of God in us and the Christ in us that is working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So that when we do find ourselves at odds with the teaching of Scripture and the commands of God, we repent and we ask God to restore our faith in Christ and you constantly look to Christ for He is your salvation and hope and righteousness. But we are commanded to take on the mind of Christ and pray that this mind be in you that was also in Jesus, that you be transformed in your mind. It's that conundrum that we find ourselves in always. This is about faith and belief in Christ and it's all about Christ, Yes. That's what your salvation is about. But God does call us to obedience. That's why we're all here to gather this morning. Out of obedience to what He has commanded us. 
do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now some days we will forsake it and we won't be here. Thankfully that doesn't mean we're kicked out of the family. It means we run back to Christ. Our hope is in Christ, not in our doings. <coughs> but the thing the Bible tells us is that working out our salvation with fear and trembling and making our calling and election sure, that is in the working it out. That is in the obedience. And whenever we fail, it just reminds us, my hope is not in my works. My hope is in Christ. But God help me obey. Give me a desire to do the things that are right. We need to be able to look at our Christian faith and see some places where God is making us different. If there's been no change in our lives, how can we say that we belong to Him? I mean, you you can't look at Saul and say, man, he just really didn't ever change. No, he changed a lot. And you're not going to be a Saul, most likely, or Paul, me neither, or Philip, or Stephen. But you will definitely be a you. And here's the thing, the God of Paul and Stephen and Philip demands the same things from us that he did from them. You don't follow my commands or the commands of Sovereign Savior Church, but the commands of God. And I guess here's what somehow I want you to learn, and I want to learn this myself. That is to never be satisfied with my spiritual growth, but always be satisfied with Christ. So that I'm always longing and striving to be more like Christ, knowing that my justification is final and my eternal destiny is set. And I have been sanctified. But I want to see God making, working out the salvation in my life. Not to save me. He is saving me. But part of salvation is living it out. We are being saved. We are saved and we're being saved and we forever will be saved. It's not an effort. Our, our, our sanctification shouldn't be an effort of futility, but one that causes us, gives us fulfillment because we can't lose. You can't mess up Christianity because... God has saved you and given you His Spirit. In other words, you can't fail sanctification. But the Bible says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And that's a big deal. It won't look the same in every one of us. But I pray that you're at least doing what the Scriptures say and make your calling and election sure. That's how the hope and the promises of God keep coming back to us. When we go back to the Scripture and say, well, okay, I messed up and I need forgiveness and God gives me forgiveness. Thankfully, my salvation is not based on whether I messed up or didn't mess up. My salvation is based on Christ and His righteousness. So give me forgiveness and put my feet back on the solid ground, so to speak, and in the narrow path. And whenever I get out, bring me back to that. Not that I earn anything from God. Not that I can boast about it. But that it just continues to resonate in my mind and my soul that I belong to Him. That I, like the church in the first century, I'm totally attached to Him. 
He loves me the same as He loved them. He loves you the same as He loved them. And He wants and will get what He wants from you. It's a beautiful picture. Conversion. Sometimes we just need to look at some of these people in Scripture and be encouraged. And God takes some rascals and saves them. And makes them different and new. Not perfect, because Christ is perfect, but He makes them new. I pray that is your story, and if not, that it will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would continue to use your word and your preachers of the gospel to bring people to faith in Christ, and that their hope will solely and totally be in him. God, help us to work out in our minds and hearts how this all fits together. But give us a desire for holiness and a desire for walking according to your word and in your commandments. Cause us to love each other and to be a faithful and obedient people. And God, we know that when we're not, you will forgive us and that you will bring us back to yourself and you'll give us repentance and set our feet back in the straight path. And it seems like for most of us, that happens every day. But we thank you that there is that grace in Christ. Every minute of every day. It definitely happens every day. So we just praise you for forgiveness and for holiness and righteousness that is in Christ alone. And we do put all our faith and hope in him. But God, help us to be um, examples of the faith like so many we read about in the scriptures. That you'll be glorified through us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.